0: So, it's time for the Friday Night Dharma movie. And I think it's a drama of sorts, but I think it has a happy ending, I hope. So, the title of the talk tonight is The Courage to Live, the Practice of Forgiveness. First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. It is also necessary to realize that the forgiving act must always be initiated by the person who has been wronged, the victim of some great hurt, the recipient of some torturous injustice, the absorber of some terrible act of oppression. The wrongdoer may request forgiveness. He may come to him like the prodigal prodigal son moving up some dusty road, his heart palpitating with the desire of forgiveness. But only the injured neighbor, the loving father back home, can really pour out the warm waters of forgiveness." Those are the words of the great Dharma teacher, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And I am serious in terms of calling him my Dharma teacher because Dharma is the wisdom of the truth of things that is universal to all spiritual traditions. It doesn't matter whether it's a Buddhist tradition or any other wisdom tradition. It takes a lot of courage and clear awareness to look into our hearts for the capacity to forgive. It takes, and this is why the talks are sequenced this way. It takes the mindfulness that Anushka was talking about, the metta and loving kindness that Bhante was talking about, as well as the compassion practice that Sharon will talk about tomorrow. Whether you're in a position to ask for forgiveness or offer forgiveness, it's a relational process. Even though it may look purely like an internal experience, ultimately it's about our relationship to the humanity of ourselves and others. So it's slightly different than apologizing. I apologize to you that's sort of directional. But when I ask you for forgiveness, there's a relational energy that automatically comes into play. There's a distinction also between the act that harmed as between the act that harmed and the person that did the harming. So as Bhante indicated last night, forgiveness is not about condoning or redeeming or pardoning or absolving or excusing or forgetting. Sometimes that phrase, forgive and forget. They're all different than this practice of forgiveness. Those ideas are basically focused on the act that harmed me. Forgiveness is really about our intention towards the person who harmed us. How do we hold the person involved? Do I hold this person as a human being or a thing or something even worse? Forgiving the person or the human being not necessarily the act of harm or the injurious behavior. So again from Dr. King, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to the relationship. So, some of the teachings Um, uh, suggest or invite us when we get into conflict or that when anger arises is to somehow remember the relationship and one of the practices is um, if you're angry with someone to give them a gift. It's as simple as that. And And it's not as if the gift will resolve the conflict or the anger or or make it go away, but just see what happens when there's a a remembering that the relationship still exists. So I had an opportunity to practice that. Um, uh, My husband and I have been together for about nine years, but before we got together he was married to his wife for 28, raised two children, and um, And the divorce was really acrimonious, as you might imagine. And yet, there were two children involved that um, all of us still wanted to stay connected um, uh, because they were about to start their families and get married. and, And we knew that the weddings of these two children were in the near future. And yet there was this incredible acrimony going pain, suffering that was arising. And so at some point in time, Stephen and I went on a vacation, and you know how you buy things and give things to, you know, your mom and dad or your, your best friend or whatever, and and the idea arose between us that we needed to give her a gift without any expectation and so it happened to be near the holidays the seasonal holidays so um, and they celebrate christmas so we got her a christmas present and sent it to her we actually never heard you know i knew that she got it because i sent it to the mail with a return receipt so (laughs) i know that she got it (laughs) Know, there was no thank you and that's fine and we made it through those family events which you know you know weddings funerals whatever they are can be a vortex of family patterns right and we made it through all of them. Ajahn Jimnian, who comes to the West Coast I don't know whether he's been to the East Coast but he's one of the Uh, Thai meditation masters that that are currently living. He he is in southern Thailand and he tells the story um, um, that um, in the not so recent past, uh, Thailand is a country that is 98% Buddhist and um, and there have been a lot of uh, sort of colonial efforts to uh, uh, send missionaries in and to convert uh, the country. And some of the methods uh, that were used were quite subversive. You know, they, I don't know if, if some of you have been to Asia, but in, in relatively rural Asia um, they have an interesting news broadcasting system. It's, um, it's a little Volkswagen bug with four loudspeakers going in each direction and it goes around town broadcasting the news. And so um, <coughs> uh, there was a time in which uh, um, in the, in the, they had hired local folks to basically slander these senior Thai monks um, by saying, you know, by saying basically the worst things that they were Having liaisons with women, or they were amusing money, or you know, whatever it was that would basically defame these, these um, senior uh, religious leaders. And that was what was happening to Ajahn Jinn in, at, in his hometown. And, um, but everybody in the town, everybody in, you know, goes to the temple at some point in time because it's the community center and there are holidays and, and and you pay respects to your ancestors and and so eventually the person who drove this Volkswagen bug eventually ended up in temple. And um and and he shared with Ajahn that he was the a person who was doing this slander. And um that uh, they had offered him a large sum of money, but that and, and that because he had um, a large family of six children and one of them was incredibly ill and he couldn't find any other work, you know, that it was the, it was the way that he, that he could actually survive. And without blinking an eye, Ajahn turned to him and said, you do what you have to do in order to survive. I give you my blessing. There was not even a pause. The forgiveness was like water that, that flowed. And eventually, this man um, um, took on robes with ordained with ajan. The Pali word for forgiveness is kama which sometimes, is it's not the kama of karma, K-A-M-M-A, it's spelled K-H-A-M-A, and it also means the earth. So the earth has come up before in our Dharma discussions. A mind like the earth is unshakable with the intention to create non-harm even when we are harmed ourselves. When you forgive me for harming you, you are aware that you have a choice. You have a choice. You can choose the path towards less suffering, which is deciding not to retaliate, which is deciding not to continue a cycle of suffering, which is usually called retribution. You simply lift yourself out of the quicksand of resentment and it's a gift that you give yourself as well as the perpetrator so the formal practice of forgiveness um, in the way that, that has come to the West is, is, is offered in three directions and personally I'll, if I have time I'll talk about a fourth that I've incorporated into my own practice So the three directions are forgiving self, asking for forgiveness from others is the second direction. The third direction is forgiving others. And the fourth direction is really forgiving the reality of the first noble truth, forgiving those circumstances that are beyond anyone's direct control forgiving the fact that there is suffering in this life. So, in the first direction of forgiving self, and it begins with, may I forgive myself, we are often our own harshest critic, right? So, this, this, this emerges really quickly, for example, and I know that that some of you have, um, have not been feeling well during the retreat, you know, whether you've contracted a cold or a cough. But even on the external world, you know, when you get sick, you, you feel that something's wrong, that, that, you know, you still have to go to work, you still have to be productive. You overcompensate and try to white knuckle your way through this and um, uh, that, 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 you know, um, that you judge yourself for even having, you know, gotten, you're your so, you know, I'm so stupid for not wearing that coat or, you know, and, and it, it starts to um, cascade into these feelings of low self-esteem or self-worth. It ha- even happens when we have an agitated sitting period, that we're not doing it right. <laughs> How many times have I felt that? Or even the strong emotions that arise, you know, the anger and the depression, and then blaming ourselves for having these states of mind and wanting to get over it. And when they're still swirling around us, we get angry at the anger. What's that about? We actually feed the anger, as Bonte was saying. Or we get depressed at the depression. This is why the instructions around or the invitations around the awareness practice is so important. And even in the guided breath meditations, you know, the the, um, encouragement to incline yourself not to judge the judgment, to be kind to the judgment as opposed to be angry at the anger as soon as you meet that judgment for what it is and you feel it without wanting it to be anything other than it is, you are actually beginning to dissolve it. You're not feeding it. It's not, you know, uh, non-judgment of the judgment is not a cute turn of the phrase. It's really a profound practice. So. We know that life gets really hard and difficult. And the conditioning of our lives sometimes inclines our experience so that our hearts become as hard and difficult as our life. This is the second arrow of suffering that Anushka was talking about in the story of the two arrows. Sometimes there is pain and suffering that comes from external circumstances. That's the first arrow. But then we shoot a second arrow into ourselves when we become as hard and difficult as those circumstances. And that second arrow is what the Buddha said was optional. one aspect of of easing our ways into this practice of forgiving ourselves is really recognizing our own merit. Just recalling the goodness that you've done to yourself in your life, that you've done to others. Letting yourself really sink into the experience of how good you are as a person. How many times have you ever done that? Huh. And so, some of the invitation in the, in, at the end of the sitting period is, is see if you can appreciate yourself and appreciate your efforts, even if you're a blubbering mess, even if it's chaos because you're a good mess, (laughs) (laughs) because in spite of the mess, you're really a good person and you pick up the pieces and as you know, that phrase, sometimes we need to have a breakdown in order to have a breakthrough, it's a breakdown of ideas of who we think we are of who we can be, of what we can or cannot control, of our patterned way of thinking and behaving. Who would you be, what would you do if you never were separated from this sense of goodness and worthiness in your life? Our society devalues and diminishes us in so many ways. That phrase that, that has been current because of, the, of, of President Obama's campaign and Alice Walker, we are the ones that we have been waiting for, makes even more profound meaning. We talk about wise speech a lot. Wise speech is part of the precepts. Wise speech is part of the Eightfold Path. The most important things we say in the world are the things we say to ourselves. What do we say? Do we say to ourselves that we are good, that we belong here, that we deserve happiness, and that we can actually achieve it? The Buddha said that birth in, in this form of being human is so very precious. So the metaphor is a beautiful metaphor. It's this vast ocean in which this giant sea turtle is living. And every 100 years, this sea turtle comes up for air to the surface. And in this vast ocean, there is this um, uh, wooden circle, wooden um, uh, ring, And the chances of being born a human are the chances of this giant sea turtle coming up once every hundred years, getting a breath of air through the ring in this vast ocean. That is how infrequently beings are, are reborn into this human form. It is that precious. He didn't say that men were more precious than women. He didn't say that one culture is more precious than another. He didn't say that heterosexual beings are more precious than gay or lesbians. He didn't say that people who have more power are more precious than people who have less power. He didn't say that less angry people are more precious than more angry people. (laughs) He simply said, that all beings born into this human form are precious because we all have the capacity to awaken. So the second direction of forgiveness is asking for forgiveness from others, others that you may have harmed that you may have caused injury. I ask for your forgiveness is the beginning of that practice. It really is acknowledging our own mistakes and imperfections that we're still learning in this life, that we haven't gotten there. And likely, no one has. And so we're, we're, we're on this collective journey. And that's something that is universal, that connects us regardless of background, culture, gender, orientation. And, so, and this is, goes second because sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness after we have accepted our own imperfections, after we have forgiven ourselves. Just exploring that vulnerability so that that vulnerability feels um, possible to share with another. And, the, and there is, of course, the fear that comes up when, when one is vulnerable uh, for asking for forgiveness, setting the intention again, not being attached to the outcome because we can't control what that person is going to offer us or not. But one image I love is, you know, when, when the fear of vulnerability comes up because vulnerability is a human quality. At some point in time, every single person in this room has felt vulnerable, regardless how, of how strong you are. What if the world were too vulnerable? What a, what a tender place that would be to live. So this was written by a doctor, Abraham Vergesi, who is a, um, he's of East Indian origin, but he grew up in Ethiopia. And um, uh, he's, a, he's actually a, uh, quite an accomplished physician and worked in the in the early days of the AIDS crisis in the the Appalachian uh, states. Um, But he also is an incredibly accomplished writer. He went to the Iowa school, uh, writing school. And um, so he writes this in the New York Times. He's in Texas now. With the first busloads of uh, Katrina refugees about to arrive in San Antonio, the f- call went out for physician volunteers and I signed up for the 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift. On the way, riding down dark, deserted streets, I thought of driving in for night shifts in the ICU as an intern many years ago, and how I would try to steal myself as if putting on armor. My first patient sat before me, haggard, pointing to what ailed her, as if speech no longer served her. An antibiotic and a pair of slip-ons from the room full of donated clothing and a night with her feet elevated, that would help. Near the end of my shift, a new group of patients arrived. A man in his 70s with gray hair and beard came in looking fit and vigorous. One eye was milky white and sightless, but a glint in his good eye was good enough for two. His worldly belongings were in a garbage bag, but his manner was dignified. He told me that for two nights after the floods, he had perched on a ledge so narrow that his legs dangled into the water. At one point, he said he saw Air Air Force One fly over, and his hopes soared. I waited and waited, he said, but no help came. Finally, a boat got him to a packed bridge. There again he waited. He shook his head in disbelief. Doc, they treat refugees in other countries better than they treated us. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, I said. I'm so sorry. He looked at me, long and hard, cocking his head as if weighing my words, which sounded so weak and inadequate. He rose, holding his hand, holding out his hand, his posture firm as he shouldered his garbage bag. Thank you, Doc. That's all I needed to hear. All they got to say is sorry. All they got to say is sorry driving home, I remembered my metaphor of strapping on armor for the night shift. The years have shown that there is no armor. There never was. The willingness to be wounded may be all we have to offer each other. We all have received injuries and we all have injured others. When we injure others, can we remember how that felt for us when it happened to us? One of the universal teachings cross-culturally that parents give to their children when they make a mistake or they harm someone is, how would you feel if that happened to you? It is something that we know deeply is a practice that is so human. In that empathetic and compassionate awareness, asking for forgiveness comes with greater ease. Seeing the experience through someone else's shoes and this is actually Um, explicated in the, the traditional teachings. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, it said, the noble ones abide contemplating internally. They abide contemplating externally. They abide contemplating both internally and externally. There is an awareness, a practice, there is the guidance and the encouragement to feel into someone else's experience using your own. We are invited to become more and more aware of our impact on others and from that awareness to commit to learn from these events so that we create less harm in the world. The deep awareness of how we harm and how we have been harmed really shows us the way to become the person that we vision ourselves to be. And of course, one key encouragement is to engage in this process, without self-judgment, but with learning. So um, after, in Asia, after I had done my period of ordination for about six months, um, I went to do some dharma sightseeing. And I went to Cambodia to see Angkor Wat and, um, and see the, you know, um, uh, the ruins there and, and you have to actually hire um, a guide and a, and a driver because the grounds are so expansive. I mean, it's mind-boggling how large the, the complex is and, and so we had the driver for about two days and after each day, at the end of the day, he gets out of the car and does the Angeli, the Y, a bowing and he said, may you forgive me for anything that I have done to harm you. It's, it was just part of that cultural expression and the response is an automatically, of course, from that place of kindness. It just indicated to me that the more we do the practice, the easier it comes. And in a way, just like the metta practice, the, you know, the metta practice goes from self to loved one, benefactor, neutral person, difficult person. In a way, it gets progressively, um, it progressively stretches our capacity to open our hearts and our minds. So the forgiveness practice is like that too. So as we direct it to ourselves, as we ask for forgiveness from others, then we go to the third direction which is forgiving others for harm that has come into our lives. And it's an incremental practice. The inclination of course is to go to the greatest harm that has been you know, caused in our life because th- there actually feels as if there's some aversion to it. We want it to, we want it to be resolved. But the practice really invites us to start with an injury that, that, that is smaller so that we can feel our way into the experience and really know how it unfolds, and also noticing, and this is part of the awareness practice, where forgiveness is not yet possible, and seeing if it's possible to maintain the intention for forgiveness even though the practice feels Uh, Not right in this moment. So there's that story about the two ex-prisoners of war which you may have heard of and they were imprisoned during some war and 20 years later they meet and uh, one of the ex-prisoners of war says, um, have you forgiven your captors? And the other guy says, are you kidding after what they did to us? and the response is, so they still have you in prison, haven't they? Forgiving is not about giving something to someone else. It's about giving freedom to yourself. It's about our own liberation. All of us have been unfairly harmed, and when we are unaware, we begin to internalize this harm. And that expression turns into anger, resentment, depression. So we explore these experiences of injury or trauma with great care and compassion and kindness. And that's why we don't go to the greatest injury. We start with, with a transgression that is minor, and again, getting used to it, getting, getting, getting confident in it, getting, uh, be, being able to develop faith in this process. So I gave a class in forgiveness um, on the West Coast recently and I asked folks in the class to write a definition of forgiveness. And one woman writes, which reflects the story I just told, but it really puts it into sort of our lived householder experience. 21 years ago I was denied a new position because, not because I was, wasn't qualified, but because I, they had decided to use it as a training for the up-and-coming. This meant I was expected to train another person for the position that I wanted. Five five years afterwards, I finally got the position because the bosses changed. But I spent many hours dreaming of revenge. (laughs) After five years, I let go of the revenge and moved on to holding a grudge. I was lucky he worked across the country, I, so I didn't see him often. I had a hard time even being civil for the rest of the time I worked there, which was another six years. I let it go at that point. I released the pain, but I still dreamed about it. Now, 21 years later, I still have not forgiven him. I doubt. He has even thought about it after the first six months. Saying you forgive someone can help them if they're feeling guilt over a past action. However, it is more likely to help you release the revenge and pain to free up your psychic energy for more productive things. My guess is that I spent 2,000 hours over the years on this issue. Forgiveness takes courage because it's a radical act. The Bhagavad Gita says, if you want to see the heroic, you look at those who can love in return for hatred. If you want to see the brave, you look for those who can forgive. This is radical because our usual cultural pattern is to meet energy with energy right? We meet anger with anger. And this is not to personalize it and to blame ourselves. This is a social piece of conditioning that has come to us as a legacy of thousands of years. And the reason I say this is because I, I had the um, opportunity to be on vacation in Paris once, and I went to the Louvre. And I saw the piece of stone that um, the code of laws of Hammurabi were etched. And the translation was, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye should be put out. If he break another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. This This is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. to return the same or greater harm to the injurer. This is 4,000 years of conditioning. So, when there's injury, it's not surprising that this energy comes up. How dare you? You know? And sometimes, we feel like taking out this sword to annihilate you know, that injury. But in Buddhism, there's two swords. One is the sword of Manjushri, who's the bodhisattva of wisdom that cuts through the delusion. And then there's the other sword of Mara, which creates more suffering and destruction. So with awareness even though we know that there are two swords. We have a choice of whether we're going to destroy or whether we're going to live our life with wisdom. Bhante gave a beautiful teaching on anger last night and and also emotions this morning. Why are we conditioned to get on that train of revenge and anger and hatred. So my theory around that is that there are pleasant feelings in anger. There are pleasant feelings in rage. There are pleasant feelings in hatred. And this is why Vedana is such an important practice. Noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Because when, you, when we don't recognize the pleasantness, we get seduced by the pleasant feelings and we want more and we feed them. We actually feed the anger because we don't recognize the harm it's causing. We feed the anger because it feels good. The pleasant feelings are there. The awareness practice is radical because it stops us at simply noticing the pleasant feelings, And then we have a choice. We have a choice of how we want to act regardless of the pleasant feelings. Also, I want to talk about this lived experience of forgiveness, that there's an ebb and flow, that it's an organic process as opposed to a destination or an end that we get to. Forgiveness is not an outcome to strive for my experience is actually there is no formal ending. I mean, even though we want closure over something, that forgiveness is a process that's alive and lives because we are alive and live. And so there's this, you know, there's this process that we, sometimes the heart opens and there's that generosity of offering the forgiveness and then we feel that oh it's resolved but then it comes up again you know and and as you sit on your cushion it's said that everything in your life comes up when you get on that cushion or chair this is an experience that's more intense than any psychotherapy <laughs> right because you go to the therapist for an hour a week but you're with yourself 24/7 here so everything comes up and the memories come up and you, th- and you would think, I thought I dealt with that. And here it is again, there's an ebb and flow, and just the ability to watch it, to be kind to that, as opposed to judging, I should have gotten over this. This is 21 years ago, or whatever it was. It's just like a flower that opens and closes. Everything in life pulses. Everything in life has that movement. And it's like any physical injury. If you have a physical injury and you heal from it, you never obliterate the experience. You may actually surpass your functioning previous to the injury. But the scar is always there, even if it fades. The experience becomes part of us. It's our relationship that changes. And we don't have to do it right now. We don't have to forgive today or in this moment. Just setting the intention to be able to forgive in the future creates a different pattern in our lives. So committing to forgive as opposed to committing to continue the injury. So one more example. Um, I live in a very beautiful place in San Francisco. I'm very fortunate. Um, About 20 years ago, um, I had this opportunity to rent this small uh, in-law apartment in this in this house and um, and the owner lives in it and uh, last March um, the house next door got rented for nine thousand dollars a month and we found out that the people who rented the house bought the house across the street to renovate it they bought it for two million and put another two million to renovate it So, this is during a financial year that you all know about, right? So, I give you that background because construction in San Francisco is really difficult because it completely disrupts parking and parking is this commodity. Mm -hmm. And so, with that construction of basically tearing down the house and rebuilding it, they had 10 vehicles and it just disrupted the entire community. Uh, and one day, the, one of the trucks was half-blocking the driveway that I, that I um, park in. And um, so, I went over and I, and I identified the worker who um, was this Latino man. And I was trying to explain to him that <clears throat> because of everything going on, I couldn't park in the street and I couldn't park in my driveway. And this was frustrating. and. In the middle of that conversation, this car comes in and, um, and I've not met the people that, that are um, part of this, and this woman comes rushing up and, he's, and she says, you, you talk to me. He's just my worker, but you talk to me if you have a problem. I can't tell you how many bells rang. (laughs) I can't tell, I mean, my heart is beating right now. (laughs) You know, we're talking about every single oppression that I can think of getting triggered. And in spite of that, The only thing, and so, I mean, of course the language, you know, the self-talk, the most important things are what you say to yourself. The self-talk that was arising, I can't say (laughs) in this room. (laughs) And so, what arose was, what do I do? What do I do not to do anything to make this situation worse? And, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. Because whatever I said I knew would be creating harm. So I walked away. I just walked away. I disengaged. And I'm sure she felt that totally as a diss. (laughs) And yet, I couldn't do anything different but my intention was not to create any more harm and I know that there are going to be future interactions. I mean, she's just across the street. This is going to be a process. (laughs) This is going to have an ebb and flow to it. I'll tell you about it next year. <laughs> but even in that, you know, that, that lightness, um, it's the intention that begins to drive um, our experience. Ajahn Chah said, um, He's another one of the Thai uh, meditation teachers of the last century that, that many of our teachers have learned from. If you let go a little, you get a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, you get complete freedom. The ancillary passage that he writes is, Even though we can't yet let go, we are aware of these states continuously. Being continuously aware of ourselves and our attachments, we will come to see that such grasping is not the path. We know, but we can't let go. But that's 50%. Though we can't let go, we do understand that letting go of these things will bring peace. So just knowing where the path is taking us, this letting go, this letting go part of forgiveness is, um, feels like, can feel like such an insurmountable um, uh, challenge. So I don't know if you have read uh, Dreams of Dreams from My Father. That was written by um, Obama before, he, uh, before his presidential campaign. But when I started reading it, um, it was right in the beginning. And this story just stopped me. Um, and it was about Barack's father, whose name is also Barack. After long hours of study, my father had joined my grandfather and several other friends at a local Waikiki bar. Everyone was in a festive mood, eating and drinking to the sounds of a slack-keyed guitar, when a white man abruptly announced to the bartender, loudly enough for everyone to hear that he shouldn't have to drink good liquor next to, and he used the N-word. The room fell quiet and people turned to my father expecting a fight. Instead, my father stood up, walked over to the man and smiled, and proceeded to lecture him about the folly of bigotry, the promise of the American dream, and the universal rights of man. (laughs) This fellow felt so bad when Barack finished, grandfather would say, that he reached into his pocket, gave Barack a hundred bucks on the spot paid for all of our drinks for the rest of the night, and your dad's rent for the rest of the month. (laughs) What kind of man? And, and, and Barack's father was not a perfect man. It's clear from his book. But what kind of man can let that go and stay engaged in the relationship? Mm. This is not the Buddha, and yet this is very human. This is, so it is possible, and it's not simple. So, (coughs) Bhante has a a much deeper knowledge of the Abhidharma than I do, Buddhist psychology. Um, But I try to dabble in it to to try to understand, because, it's just another frame of reference in terms of whether it's Western psychology or Eastern psychology. And within Buddhist psychology there are 52 mind states that they identify of which some of them are unwholesome negative states. But there are these 25 beautiful mind states that they, um, that they identify. And so I went through them and this is not part of the Ardbidharma, this is just part of my own investigation and I figured out for my forgiveness practice I needed 23 of these 25 beautiful mind states. (laughs) This is a lot. No wonder it's so complex. So some of them are faith, non-greed, mindfulness, non-attachment, non-hatred, hesitation and fear of doing harm, balance of mind, tranquility, Spaciousness, flexibility, wise speech, wise action, compassion. The stronger these factors are, the stronger the capacity of forgiveness flows. Forgiveness is one word, but not one act alone. Forgiveness is the process we live through in order to restore a relationship. Forgiveness is the process of coming back together again with another or with oneself after a separation based on wrongdoing or grievous shortcoming. Forgiveness involves the acknowledgement and where possible, the mutual recognition of what went wrong, of what we're doing right to right the balance and especially of the meaning and importance of the relationship. That's Greta Crosby who's a Unitarian Universalist minister. So the fourth direction of forgiveness is forgiving the pain of life, the reality of the first noble truth. Bringing the transformation (coughs) of loving kindness and forgiveness into our experience with the pain of the world. Illness, death, violence, tragedy, oppression, racism, sexism. Of course, we would not design the world this way. But we can create the conditions for its improvement. The Buddha's teachings are about causes and effects. In this retreat and in your practice, we are living the causes. That seed future effects, and that seed is the future transformation of the suffering of our world. The Dharma is not just about your personal practice. It is not just about your personal enlightenment or freedom. It is about transforming our communities and the world. Our practice is creating freedom for ourselves, for the world, and the world's yet to be. So I want to wish everybody in the room a happy Juneteenth. It's today. And uh, I speak for everyone at IMS when I say that we are honored and blessed to have your presence on this holiday, cultivating your hearts with loving kindness and awareness. Last November, at the invitation of one of our sisters from Tallahassee, who's attended many of these um, uh, POC retreats, I did a day long <coughs> of metta and healing in, in, in her part of the country, and it was called Compassionate Transformation, Beginning to Heal the Legacy of Slavery. And before I went, uh, a lot of people I knew came up to me and said, whoa, that's intense. Why are, why, why are you doing it? You know, you're, you're a gay Chinese man, you're going to Florida, you've never lived in Florida. <laughs> and my response is, we can be agents of each other's healing. This is the practice of sangha. The healing of oppression is not just the issue of communities who have been targets of oppression. So I stand with my brothers and sisters in their healing because I need them to stand when I am healing my own life experience. I know that Sharon does a lot of work in uh, the area of domestic and sexual violence. The issues of sexism and violence to women are not just issues for women. They're issues for men too. The issues of racism are not just issues for people of color. The issues of heterosexism is not just an issue for gay people. The practice invites us to stand in community and sangha with those who suffer, whoever they are, in order that they may heal, to cover each other's backs with a cloak of kindness. And so we may collectively heal and eventually forgive and let go. As that woman was saying, to free up psychic energy to do the work that we're really meant to do. I don't see this as a passive practice. And I know that there's been some comments around that. You have made the courageous step of coming into predominantly an all-white community to experience universal teachings. These teachings have yet to make an intimate path into our multicultural communities. But it is a fact that Dharma, when the Dharma enters a culture, It both changes that culture and is changed by it. It has happened over and over and over again. I don't see the passivity of this practice. I see the power and the immensity of this practice. Who is going to show us how to bring our Dharma practice into our everyday lives, into our specific communities? You are. You are the spokes of the wheel that radiate out into your families and your communities and even, even if you, you know, don't go into intensive practice, if you, you know, just being who you are, affecting the people around you, your loved ones, your family, your communities, you begin to change their lives, too. I was in Washington and one Latino man stood up and said, I can't wait for the Dharma to come into my community. So, it could be interpreted two ways. I can't wait until the Dharma comes into my community. But I actually feel that he meant, I cannot wait for the Dharma to come into my community. I have to do something about it. That's what I heard. but in the overwhelm of suffering and injury, as Bhante was asking before, why me? The question of awareness is, who else? Who else could possibly know how to heal our lives? In the suffering and in the wanting of things to be other than they are, the question arises, why do I have to have this pain in my life? The courage of forgiveness asks, who else would live this beautiful and painful life of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows? That is each and every human being's experience. We have 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. There is no such thing as a life without the sorrows. Who else can move towards letting go and forgiving this first noble truth of the fact that there is suffering. The power of forgiveness is about how we restore our hearts to r- in order to restore the world. And in the midst of adversity, we create these beautiful lives. So, a brilliant example of this is in spite of the legacy of so much suffering. We have elected a president who represents the possibilities that were previously beyond hope. In spite of so much suffering, each of us has not lost sight of who we see ourselves to be, of how we wish to live our lives. In spite of so much suffering, each of us, has created a beautiful life here, or we wouldn't be in this room. And this beauty, in the midst of adversity, whatever it is, by another name can be called freedom. I'll end with a sh- short passage of a book that I found. It's not a great piece of literature, but this passage really spoke to me. It took me a long time, and most, and it's a, it's a novel about a, um, uh, you know, one of these suspense thrillers, but since I picked it up in Asia, it has a particular Dharma feel to it. It took me a long time and most of the world to learn what I know about love and hate and the choices we make. But the heart of it came to me in, in an instant when I was chained to a wall and being tortured. I realized somehow through the screaming in my mind that even in that shackled, bloody helplessness, I was still free. Free to hate the men who were torturing me or to forgive them. It doesn't sound like much, I know. But in the flinch and the bite of the chain, when it's all you've got, that freedom is the universe of possibility. And the choice you make between hating and forgiving can become the story of your life. So I thank you for your kind attention.